Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is week six, Pride and Prejudice and Pride and Prejudice and Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. <laughs> oh my. This is rolls right off the tongue. It's right? easy. We like to keep um, our titles succinct here. Right. So happy Valentine's Day, everyone. This episode should be coming out on February 14th. Um, and so we're getting a little sappy this week with, you guessed it, Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> right, right. Happy Valentine's Day to all of our listeners out there. Um, thank you for tuning in and joining us uh, today. And we hope you enjoy our tales of romance um, or our singular tale of romance today. Right. Told in many different ways. Like the most different ways that we could possibly find right we got really into it this week i was not expecting to get this into the pride and prejudice week but we really we watched a lot of stuff yeah um so i had been familiar with the story before and several of these uh uh, renditions but alex you are completely new to this story fresh this week right right i had no experience with it all i knew um had come from either friends talking about it or the stray uh gif on tumblr from the lizzie bennett diaries but other than that uh i knew nothing and i know we both we both actually listened to the audiobook this week as yep, well so we're familiar with the source material right, right 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 and we'll go over that here before we even uh dive into the movies themselves but uh, we also watched our three movies proper this week, as well as uh, some other uh, imitations. But we'll, uh, we'll we'll get into that later. Yeah, we'll t- this is a movie podcast, but we will um, kind of direct you to some further watching if you're interested uh, at the end. Right, right. Because if you are a Pride and Prejudice fan, uh, you're in luck. There's a lot of you. There's a lot of us, I should say, out there. Um, and it's been made. A lot of times. Yes, very many. So anyway, let's talk about uh, the source material itself. Uh, If you don't know, Pride and Prejudice is a novel that was written by Jane Austen in 1813, or it was at least published in 1813. And Jane Austen was a fantastic author, uh, born in 1775. Uh, lived to 1817. She lived in England under the Regency. Um, so we have a lot of that culture present in her books, and that plays a very large part in Pride and Prejudice itself. Yep. She's known for, of course, this book and several others, such as Sense and Sensibility, Mansfield Park, Emma, um, lots of stuff. Very, um, very accomplished for a woman of her time. And as we learned in the story, uh, there are lots of young, accomplished women. Right, Alex? <laughs> right, right. Well, if you if you look at what really makes an accomplished woman, there's not really that many out there. Maybe half a dozen? If you're lucky. Yeah. Okay, so let's just kind of talk over the plot. And we figure there's no spoilers on 19th century literature uh, if it's been around for over a century, then you had your chance to uh, to avoid spoilers. Right. So we're just going to go over the basic points of the whole plot so that as we get to each of these movies, we don't have to go over the story again and we can just talk about 
how they approach different aspects and um, and what they changed or added. It's it's a bit cliche, but the book is always better. It's it's always yeah. the best. Um, but it's fascinating to see the different ways you can translate that into a, a visual medium, especially film. But anyway, let's talk about our characters. So the story centers around the Bennett family, which has five sisters, Jane, Elizabeth, Mary, Kitty, and Lydia. Um, that's in order from oldest to youngest. Uh, Jane is the nicest of the daughters. Elizabeth is our protagonist and narrator. Uh, Mary is the smartest and also the most shy. Uh, and Kitty and Lydia are the most outgoing, flirtatious, and reckless of, yeah. of, 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 the, of the five. Yeah, so they also have a mother who is, uh, how do we put it? She is completely obsessed yeah, with marrying off yeah. her daughters. Yeah, it's very obsessed with, with marrying off her daughters. She gets uh, flustered and hysterical at every little thing that goes wrong in her life and drives their father, uh, Mr. Bennett, totally crazy. And he takes solace by reading in his um, study as much as he can. And, uh, and he likes Elizabeth the best. So they definitely have a special relationship um, and an understanding together that's kind of unique out of the sisters. Right. And everything gets shaken up by the arrival of Mr. Bingley, a young and rich and single man who just moved into the country neighborhood. And the and Mrs. Bennett, the mother, is completely convinced that she needs to marry off at least one of her daughters to Mr. Bingley. So there's a party, and I don't remember actually who hosts the party. I don't know if it, it matters. It's, it's, it seems to be some sort of community ball held regularly. But Mr. Bingley, his arrival, and the friends he brought were definitely the uh, main news of the night. Right. So that's where Mr. Bingley and his friend, Mr. Darcy, and uh, Mr. Bingley's sister, Caroline, um, right. all get introduced to the people in the community. Um, so we get to learn about them here, too. So Mr. Bingley is a very affable, kind of um, warm-hearted and generous and just loves meeting people and talking with people. And his friend, Mr. Darcy, seems quite different. He is quiet and judgmental, kind of looks down his nose at everybody. He thinks that this country community is kind of beneath him, um, or at least that's the vibe that we get from him at, during this first impression. Right. He's very cold and distant. Uh, uh, distant. His, his friend, Mr. Bingley, is very warm and open. Mr. Bingley and Jane fall in like very quickly, <laughs> basically immediately. They dance multiple times throughout the night. There's a lot of talk about how they dance uh, together most of the night. However, uh, Darcy has a bit of a run-in with the second oldest sister, Elizabeth. Uh, that doesn't go so well. Bingley well, not so much as a, of a run-in as... Um, Elizabeth overhears a conversation between Bingley and Darcy in which Darcy says some somewhat dis disparaging comments against Elizabeth and really everyone in the room 
Um, so Elizabeth, right off the bat, knows that Darcy does not like her, and so she, right off the bat, does not like Darcy. Right, so everything's off on a bad foot for Darcy and Elizabeth. Everything's off on a great foot for Jane and Bingley. Okay, so a couple days later, Jane gets a note from the Bingleys to invite her over to tea. However, this is a note from Bingley's sister, Caroline, and uh, Bingley himself will not actually be there. So Mrs. Bennett decides to have Jane ride over on horseback because she sees that it's going to rain and she won't be able to ride back in all the mud, so she'll have to stay over the night until uh, Mr. Bingley is there so that they can have more interaction and hopefully kickstart them towards an engagement. Right. Uh, the only problem is the plan works a little too well. And Jane, Jane gets ends up getting sick and having to stay for quite a long time over at uh, Mr. Bingley's house. Uh, and then Elizabeth ends up coming over as well uh, in, in the next few days One upon hearing that Jane is sick to keep her favorite sister company. Uh, however, she's forced into the company of Darcy as well, who's staying with his friend, Mr. Bingley. Yeah, and at this point, they uh, Elizabeth finds more things to not like about Darcy. However, Darcy finds that he's actually somewhat attracted to Elizabeth at this point. Very subtly, but we find that out later. Right. We also start to see that um, Caroline, Mr. Bingley's sister, is also attracted to Darcy and definitely has designs upon his hand in marriage. Right. So once she notices that Darcy is attracted to Elizabeth, it becomes kind of a, uh, a jealous rivalry, but very underplayed. Correct. So fast forward a few days, Jane and Elizabeth are back home and, uh, we find out that a new person is coming over to dinner at the Bennett's, a Mr. Collins. Oh boy. Yeah. So Mr. Collins is a very interesting character. He is a cousin to the Bennett's. He is also the man who is designated to inherit the the Bennett's house since the Bennett's have no male heir. So if Mr. Bennett dies, all of the Bennett sisters could easily be out on their bums while Mr. Collins claims the house. So Mr. Collins comes to dinner with uh, the idea that he will marry one of those sisters in, uh, in order to keep the, the house in the family and secure uh, the house for their future, as well as securing a wife for himself, as instructed by his uh, wonderful patroness. <laughs> The Lady Catherine de Burr. So Mr. Collins is a preacher, and so he doesn't make a big living. He has a patroness who provides for him pretty much everything that he has, and he feels an overwhelming uh, debt of gratitude to her at all times, which becomes quite annoying to especially Elizabeth and Mr. Bennett, um, and they find it kind of hilarious, actually, how obsessed he is with her. So, pretty soon after Mr. Collins arrives in town, another character uh, enters our story, uh, a young new lieutenant by the name of George Wickham. <sighs> I don't like Wickham. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no one does. <laughs> no one likes Wickham. He's a Except for, well. Right. Actually, 
At the beginning, we do like Wickham. Wickham is charming. He's uh, very outgoing, and um, he charms the pants off all the sisters, basically. And Elizabeth really likes him, likes talking with him, and so they have some interactions. Um, at some point while they're talking in town, Darcy and Bingley ride up, and there are some glances exchanged between Wickham and Darcy, and Elizabeth catches on that there's some history there, and it is not altogether pleasant. Darcy leaves without really saying anything, so she questions Wickham about what's going on, and Wickham tells her this story about how Darcy cheated her out of an inheritance and stuff like that. So Elizabeth now really doesn't like Darcy. Soon after this, at the urging of some of the younger Bennett sisters, Mr. Bingley decides to hold his own ball. A lot of stuff happens in this ball. Darcy uh, is paying pretty close attention to the Bennets because he notices the attraction between Jane and his friend, Mr. Bingley. So he notices the younger sisters being quite rambunctious and uh, the mother uh, kind of exclaiming her intent for all of her daughters to be married rich and well off. Um, And meanwhile, he starts to develop a fancy for Elizabeth and actually asks her to dance at some point. Tracking forward a bit back at the Bennett residence, Uh, Mr. Collins is now trying to decide which of the Bennett sisters he would like to marry and originally casts his gaze upon Jane, the oldest. Uh, However, as Mrs. Bennett loves to brag to anyone within earshot, Jane is soon to be married to a, or soon to be engaged even, she's not even engaged yet, to a very rich man, hint, hint, Mr. Bingley. Um, Which not... Nothing has actually led to that conclusion, but she will she will spread it to anyone who will listen. Right, right, and uh, remember that. Um, but however, she informs him that Elizabeth Elizabeth hand, Elizabeth's hand is not spoken for yet. So Collins does the only logical thing and proposes to Elizabeth, who, uh, in no uncertain terms, turns him down. Even though he's very confused at, at the uh, rejection, she firmly tells him that she uh, will not be marrying him to the distress of her mother and the delight of her father. Right. And in response, a very flustered Mr. Collins goes and proposes to uh, Elizabeth's best friend, a character we haven't uh, mentioned yet named Charlotte Lucas. Uh, the Lucases are another family who lives in the same neighborhood, um, the country neighborhood, as the Bennets and are close friends to the Bennets. Um, originally, Elizabeth isn't super happy about this, but she comes she comes to learn that it's okay and Charlotte Lucas is looking to secure her her future and well-being. Uh, but Collins is now satisfied and leaves the county. So at some point, Jane gets a letter from Caroline Bingley saying that the Bingleys have to leave, uh, leave town and go to London uh, for an unknown period of time. And it's kind of vague reasons why they have to leave and vague uh, estimates of when they'll be back. And this leaves Jane really confused because she thought that they hit it off really well and she was excited to keep seeing him and now she doesn't know when 
she'll ever see him again and he never really said bye so she's a little bit distraught and elizabeth is upset and wondering if darcy has something to do with all of this so time passes and at some point liz decides to go visit uh now mrs collins uh, formerly miss charlotte lucas and uh so they spend time together and they go and visit lady catherine de Bourg. Uh, so much to Elizabeth's surprise, she's not the only visitor to Lady Catherine. Darcy is there as well, um, and also his close friend Colonel Fitzwilliams. Lo and behold, Lady Catherine de Bourgh is Darcy's aunt, Mr. Darcy's aunt. So Elizabeth gets thrust into the company of Darcy once again and um, finds more reasons to be upset at him. Meanwhile, Darcy finds more reasons to like Liz. Right, just her charming personality and her wit and her um, not cowing down to Lady Catherine de Bourgh like everyone else seems to do. So surprisingly, at least to Lizzie, uh, Darcy starts showing up uh, at the home of Mr. Collins where she is staying and visiting with her uh, one-on-one. At some point... Colonel Fitz explains to Elizabeth that he thinks that Elizabeth has the wrong impression of Mr. Darcy and that he is a much more uh, kind-hearted and good friend than she uh, expects him to be. He's just not very good at showing it. And as an example, he says that Mr. Darcy recently saved one of his close friends from making a very inconvenient and what would have been a very damaging uh, marriage. And And Elizabeth figures out that he's referring to Jane and Bingley, but doesn't mention that she's actually connected with the relationship. So this revelation kind of seals it in her mind that, okay, so Darcy really is the reason that uh, Jane and Bingley have been broken up. And then... A couple days later, again, while she's alone at uh, the Collins' house. Darcy proposes. Surprise. What? Yeah, yeah, no. Liz was super shocked. She did not see this coming at all. And she, not so politely, turns him down. uh, Accusing him both of ruining Jane and Bingley's chance at happiness together, as well as ruining her um, good friend Wickham's career prospects by denying him his inheritance yeah so darcy is like oh okay i didn't know that she had this terrible opinion of me i mean i know i kind of didn't like her family and stuff but i was gonna marry her anyway so he leaves kind of shocked at the rejection which he probably should have seen coming and then a day or two later he finds her and gives her a letter without really saying much and just says, uh, please read this. It'll kind of explain everything and then walks away again. So this letter does explain practically everything. Uh, Darcy owns up to his influence on Bingley and moving him away from Jane, uh, but he gives reasons. But to the further and deeper charge of uh, his offense against Mr. Wickham, Darcy explains the whole story, and it's a bit deeper and more complicated than Elizabeth would have expected. Right. So, yeah, what ended up happening was kind of the opposite of what Wickham had said. 
where actually Wickham kind of squandered an inheritance he got from Darcy's father and then kept asking for more money and then tried to elope with Darcy's sister before Darcy found out about it and stopped it. So he's kind of just an all-around bad guy. Right. He's he's a complete rogue, a cad. He's just after um, the money or the inheritance that a woman could bring and He's but he has the he has the personality around. he has the personality to charm women into uh, kind of going along with whatever he he says. Correct. So after this, Elizabeth kind of feels like an idiot, but she heads back home anyway. So after she comes home, she's talking with her aunt and uncle, the gardeners, and they have always wanted to see the estate of Pemberley because remember we're talking about old English mansions and uh, estate grounds and stuff like this. So Pemberley is one of the best ones and they want to go visit it. And it also happens to be Darcy's home. But they find out from one of the servants at Pemberley that the family is away for the summer. So Elizabeth agrees to go with them and visit Pemberley um, because she doesn't expect to run into Darcy at all. And guess what? She runs into Darcy and sees him there with his sister, Georgiana, um, and is totally flustered and tries to run away, but Darcy catches up to her and uh, just wants to talk to her and actually converses with her aunt and uncle. And Elizabeth is is pretty surprised at all this because she expected Darcy to be really mad at her for her rejection and um being angry at him for stuff that he didn't do or did with really good intentions. So she expects Darcy to not like her at all at this point, whereas her affections are starting to change because she finds out that he's actually been helping her family a lot. Right. And all of the, as, as her, as her impressions of Darcy start to change, um, she meets people who have much better impressions of Darcy themselves, such as the staff at, um, at Pemberley and, uh, Darcy's sister, sister, especially, uh, who she strikes up a quick friendship with. Um, And Mr. Bingley and his sister show up again. Um, Mr. Bingley at this point starts asking after Jane. Uh, He seems to have realized that maybe Jane was into him after all. However, as as up as things are looking, we really don't get to see uh, them follow through at this point. Uh, A couple letters arrive from Elizabeth's home from Jane and there's some pretty bad news. Lydia has eloped with Mr. Wickham. Bum bum bum. Unfortunately, they haven't married yet. Yeah, so Elizabeth is reading these letters. Um, uh, Darcy hears about all this and is like, okay, uh, you're pretty upset right now, so I'm gonna just go and let you kind of be alone with your emotions and and all that. Um, so Elizabeth runs back home to the the Bennets' home, which is Longbourn, and um, is trying to you know figure out what's happening. And uh, so the gardeners, her aunt and uncle, end up going down and tracking down Wickham in London. Wickham ends up marrying Lydia, which he wasn't intending to do. He was intending to just kind of use her. But they get legally married because Lydia actually has family that cares about her. And the only way to make this legit is for them to be married so um, they won't be the, the scandal of the neighborhood anymore. As soon as 
Mrs. Bennett finds out that they are actually legally married, she goes from hysterical to ecstatic that one of her daughters is now successfully married and um, she has some something she could take pride in. And Lydia and Wickham come back and all the sisters are kind of throwing shade at Lydia who is just over the moon excited. Meanwhile, Mr. Bennett and Elizabeth talk about how her uncle, Mr. Gardner, must have paid a fortune to get Wickham to marry her. Um, and they have no, they're, they're completely at a loss for how they can ever pay back Mr. Gardner for what he did for their family. Right. And soon, through, a, through the exchange of a few letters between Elizabeth and her aunt in London, uh, she discovers that it was Mr. Darcy who actually immediately rode to London, tracked down Wickham, offered him money, and forced him to marry uh, Lydia on his own expense. Right. And shortly after this, uh, the other thing Darcy does is he brings back um, Bingley to Longbourn, and they visit a couple times, and Jane and Bingley start, even though Jane had thought that she was over him, they... The flame kindles again, and Bingley proposes, and they get there a little happily ever after. So now one sister is married, another is engaged, and Mr. Darcy's still kind of hanging around. Until one day when the Lady Catherine de Boer shows up and accuses Elizabeth of being engaged to Mr. Darcy. And upon finding out that she's not, very rudely I might add, uh, she begs her to promise to never become engaged to Mr. Darcy, and Elizabeth says no to that as well. And the Lady Catherine storms out. So at some point, they're taking a walk with all the sisters, and they end up on their own, and uh, and Elizabeth says, thank you for all the stuff you've done for our family, even though I wasn't supposed to know that you're the one who did it. Um, and he says, okay, well, you know I did it all for you, so... If, you, if your feelings have changed, let me know. Otherwise, I'll stop talking about it. And she's like, well, my feelings have changed. And they get engaged and happily ever after. Right. Oh, right. so sweet. All right. So now that we've got an overview of the story, we can start to talk about the movies. And generally, we've been going in uh, kind of the order that the movies were released. But we're going to go a little bit out of order this week um, because our quote-unquote constant will be the 2005 Pride and Prejudice starring Kira Knightley because this is the one that is actually tries to hold to the book and it is in the time period that the book is set. Right, and our, our second movie this week uh, is also called Pride and Prejudice, um, but it's the 2003 version, which was a modern adaptation set in the time period it was, it was produced and released in uh, the early 2000s, but... We do have a very interesting third movie to round it out. Yeah, our last film was Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which just came out last year in 2016. It is our uh, fantasy version. All right, starting with Pride and Prejudice 2005. Alex, uh, what did you think about this movie? I absolutely loved this movie. I had... um, so a bit of background, I have no experience with Pride and Prejudice before, but I listened to the audiobook, and then immediately following, I watched this movie, and I absolutely 
loved it. I think part of it was because I was in love with the story, but it's also just incredibly well crafted and well acted. Um, they they do take some liberties to fit it all into the the two hour segment. I think they um, do a lot of combinations uh, in terms of reveals. Um, it, for instance, when when Darcy is revealing uh, his involvement with Wickham and uh, the breakup of Bingley and Jane, it, it, it's a little faster paced than it is in the book. But I, I think the liberties they took don't damage it in any way. What what did you think of the way they compressed it? Yeah, I I think they did well. They kept to, you know, the main story that we just gave our overview of. Um, they cut characters who don't have a dramatic impact on the story. Um, they kept all the major ones. There are a lot of characters that they kept, and it can maybe get a little confusing if you're not too familiar with the story. But, um, it, I mean, if you know what you're watching, you can follow along just fine. There, are, I noticed there were some things that they, in order for a more um, visual cinematic Experience. They would move certain conversations to a different location or different things just to make it more dramatic. So, for example, the proposal happens um, at almost this gazebo thing in the rain, um, just makes it very much more dramatic. They kind of take parts of, I, I think I found this in each of the versions, is they take parts of the letter and incorporate it into the proposal so that there's a little bit more back and forth between Elizabeth and Darcy at the proposal because it's kind of one-sided in the book. Um, so that that interaction is, is seen better on film if Darcy pushes back a bit, which is slightly uncharacteristic, but, but not too much. Um, and... Uh, and there's another point where Wickham is is explaining his sob story to Elizabeth, and they move that outside to under a tree, where whereas it was inside while a bunch of people are doing stuff in this room that would just be, it's a lot nicer to see them just kind of hanging out um, outside instead. Right. It was a nice way to blend um, in in a more uh, more varieties of locations. Uh, which gives you a, a little more variety in the look of the film and also kind of breaks up the um, uh, routine sitting room aesthetic that's very constant in the book and is maybe a little more vivid in the book because you get to make the sitting room in your mind. Um, whereas in in a film medium, moving between a sitting room and one scene and then uh, walking along a, a river and the next scene is a little more visually pleasing to see that back and forth. Yeah. And it's not uncharacteristic because many of the characters um, in the book enjoy walking and, you know, being right. active. So that was the uh, English countryside is a great backdrop for those kinds of scenes. It's absolutely beautiful. We And we don't just see that in this movie. We see it in um, almost all Pride and Prejudice adaptations. Uh, except maybe 2003, I think, uh, where walking <laughs> is a... There, there's a lot of things that we don't see in 2003. But, yeah, we're getting that in a second. <laughs> we'll hold off on that for now. We're, we're, we're storing it up. But walking is a, it seems to be a big motif, walking and thinking and um, kind of maybe crossing that distance between two different viewpoints. It, 
it happens a lot but you see that a lot in this movie and it's just beautiful these really wide shots of the english countryside um and actually the whole cinematography uh across this movie is really impressive you know it's the, the story is pretty much already built you already have a pride and prejudice story there's a question of how do you adapt that to film how do you shorten it but once you cross that there's there's a lot of creative energy that you have left over that you can put into how do we shoot this how do we make this visually interesting um how do we play with the performances uh to really bring this to life on screen which i think is uh one of the advantages that you have coming into working on a uh, uh, adaptation film rather than uh, an original screenplay idea but especially in this Pride and Prejudice they do a lot of really beautiful shots I know you noticed a lot of them yeah absolutely and I think one of the things when you're trying to make a film uh, and condense such a spanning uh, novel or any kind of work that spans a lot of time and you have to cram it into two hours how do you show that passage of time is really important and there are some really cool ways that they do it in this movie so in the first instance we have uh kira knightley as elizabeth bennett um kind of spinning around on this uh on this rope swing and so she twists it up and spins around but we see her perspective as she's looking between the outside and this uh barn that they have behind their house and as she spins we see the seasons changing so we know that time is elapsing um, and it's just kind of a fun thing to do. And there's another time where she's, after she reads the letter and she's contemplating it, we see her just staring in the mirror and we see the lighting in the room change behind her. Just these, these cool little visual indications that where we don't have a title card that says two weeks later <laughs> or anything like that. In the SpongeBob voice? Yeah, in the SpongeBob <laughs> voice. Um, just ways to show us that time is passing without, you know, telling us that time is passing, but showing us. Yeah, yeah, and they 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 can bring a little more meaning. They're they're very visually stunning and, and, and you know beautiful scenes to watch. I especially love the um that that time lapse after he she's gotten uh, Darcy's letter that you're talking about, where we see um the sun rise and fall, and then the moon come up. And then Darcy but walks in the background. just through light and shadows in the room. Right, right. And uh, of course, there was a little bit of VFX up there, I'm sure. But it was, it was, it was a beautiful shot. But it also brings a little extra meaning, as as do all like really complicated cinematographies um, and and shot setups tend to do uh, to to what we're seeing on film. For instance, on the the swing shot that you were talking about. She had just heard that her best friend Charlotte accepted a proposal from Mr. Collins. Right. Um, and in, in her swinging around on that swing, she's essentially staying in place as the world turns around her. And we, we, see, we see the time pass around her while she's essentially just hovering there, treading water while everything else moves forward. Yeah. And I mean, in a, in a more practical light, we're also seeing, okay, so it's been several months now. And uh, her disapproval of the marriage has kind of waned because the next thing that's going to happen is she's going to go visit them. Yeah, exactly. It definitely bridges that gap really well and, and keeps it moving. But it, it's touches like that that you really get to play with in, in these adaptation kind of films. Um, 
you know how what 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 is the interesting thing that we can bring to this story that's already really great um through a film medium and playing with cinematography is definitely a really great way to do that um and also of course i mean you would experience this in a theater setting too but casting fantastic actors and actresses yeah um, all around in, in this into one. their roles um and i'm not just saying that because i i might have a tiny bit of a crush on kira knightley but well i don't think we can help it since parts of the caribbean came out when we were what eight and when you right. when you when you're going through a pirate phase at eight, it kind of puts you on Kira Knightley's side for life. True. I, although I will say I can't claim that I went through any pirate phase. Oh, um, maybe that's just me. <laughs> maybe that's just you. But but for sure, I mean, Kira Knightley is fantastic in this. I don't know how exactly she got ended up. She ended up getting pegged as um, period piece. Like like that's like she kept getting cast in those. Um, this well, she had done. She, I mean, but, yeah. Speaking of Pirates of the Caribbean, she had done that two years prior, so um, she already had some period um, pieces in her resume. Right, right. She's got all of that credit, but it, it just works. Like she's she's a really good Elizabeth Bennett, and um, the 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 tone of the film is not super serious. As you might get in the um, 1995 miniseries, uh, which which definitely has a bit of levity in it, it's got a bit of humor. But this one's got a certain the 2000 this 2005 version has a bit of snap to it, a bit of yeah um, humor, not only in some of the moments between the characters, but also in uh, the direction and the editing. Um, and you can just see in in the cuts in the transitions where you, where you transition to a scene where they're calling out uh, the Bennett sisters who've arrived at at Mr. Bingley's house to visit Jane, and they're like introducing Miss Bennett, Miss Bennett, Miss Bennett, and Miss Bennett, and then right. you cut to a shot right there, a perfect square shot of them all fours plopping down on the couch in this very funny fashion, and you get to see all of their exaggerated expressions all at once. Um, which brings like a nice new little life to the to the story, I think. Yeah, and just kind of going back a little bit to talking about Kira Knightley, I think one of the things that she brings to this is she's one of those actors who you can see what she's thinking in her face. Like even if she's not talking, she expresses so much through her face. There's other actors who do this, like um, Martin Freeman, but it's just it's such a great quality to be able to like see the gears turning in your character's head especially on a book adaptation where in the book you you get the the writer's narration to tell you what's happening in their head and that's really the hardest part of adapting to film is that thought process so when an actor can kind of just show that without saying anything it's it's a great asset and then we've got i mean darcy was cast great bingley and the the mother and father just kind of they're just kind of exactly what you picture in your head when you're reading the book. And then we've got for Lady Catherine de Bourgh, Judy Dench, undeniably <laughs> fantastic. Great. And her hair so, was amazing. It was ridiculous, <laughs> but it was amazing. The uh, all the costume and art design was great as well. Right. I mean, that's that's part of the fun of the period piece film that's already been done 
so much i mean there's there's a lot of pride and prejudice adaptations i know both you and i watched a lot of them this week but there's even more than what we got through oh yeah uh we watched dating back to 1940 about yeah dating back to 1940 with Laurence olivier which i actually watched that one and there are some there's some big hats and big hair in that movie too um but it's fun to see it like all put together in color and uh and with the the modern kind of sleekness to it that this movie has right right and uh i just want to ask you like a really quick um overall question maybe uh have you yet to see a mr darcy you don't like because i've always i've always yeah that's a good question they've all i mean they've, they've all been cast pretty well so far i think i think we just get such a good idea of the character this tragically misunderstood nice guy who you know is is just like this guy who you really want to like by the end of the movie but it's all you know sullen and stocky like he's almost like a romance cliche and i don't know whether that came from this story like my romance history is not super <laughs> up to date i'm you sure know, like, jane austen in general had an influence on our current uh idea of romance cliches the original oh i'm sure you know i mean just this and sense and sensibility and there's there's so many that just kind of set the uh, set the tone for it but um i definitely love all of the darcy's that we saw this week and i would be willing to say that this is the best um elizabeth bennett especially yeah, i would say especially so. out of the three movies that we're talking about right right she i mean she has the the brightness the quickness that we hear about in the book she's very you know sharp and fun but also can be cynical and and condescending right right she's good at pulling but she, out those yeah flaws. she always has a lightness even when she's being critical right and it's it's not um one of the things that I, I, I've realized more and more um, as we've dove more into the story over the week is how subjective the entire story is to um, Elizabeth's point of view. So, you know, maybe the reason that the mom seems so annoying is that she's that annoying to Elizabeth. So that's how she comes across in the book. Um, so the way that Elizabeth is played doesn't just influence uh, her own part it influences all the parts rather dramatically yeah so let's jump back two years and also forward about a century uh, and talk about Pride and Prejudice 2003 starring Cam Heskin and Orlando Seal this is a very different film very different film <laughs> it's the same same story essentially but uh extremely different in approach and execution right and i think we should start with um addressing the 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 approach to the adaptation uh because while we saw in 2005 um pride and prejudice that it was trying to be as true to the book as possible it was actually set in the period this one is not this one is set in um a 2003 utah for reasons um with a modern 
I guess it's a bit dated by now, but um, a modern cast uh, dealing with modern problems, which which is uh, an interesting take, not only to see it translated to our current you know style and setting, but also trying to translate the story um, that deals with very uh, old values. And social conventions, yeah. And social conventions and, and trying to move it up to a modern day theme. Um, Which is much more casual and so it's it's right. a little so it's, bit it's, more of a challenge, but Yeah, so so we're we're not we're we're definitely not saying that this is an easy attempt. Uh, right. or or we're not saying that this is an easy thing to attempt at all. Uh, let's talk a little bit about just start off with plot changes because there were some things that changed. Actually, a lot of things that changed. There were a but lot of they, things that changed. They tried we to keep have... the gist of yeah. the arc. So to start off, all of the girls, there are still all the five girls, Jane, Elizabeth, um, Mary, Kitty, and Lydia. We keep um, the majority of the main characters, uh, except, for the fa- except for the parents, because the sisters are no longer sisters, except for Kitty and Lydia, who are sisters. Um, they are grad students who are living together in a house owned by Lydia's parents, and they are all trying to make it in the world, I guess. It's not super clearly explained. Um, our main character, Elizabeth, is a graduate student going for her degree and trying to get her, um, novel of sorts published. Uh, her best friend is... And former college roommate is Jane, who, if you remember from the main story, is the uh, big sister and the prettiest of the sisters. Um, she is a transfer student from uh, Argentina, who uh, now lives in America. Mary is still the uh, shy, recluse bookworm. Uh, and Kitty and Lydia are still boy crazy. Um, but Lydia has a much more domineering relationship uh, with Kitty. She, she definitely like controls Kitty and makes her do things uh, along with her. Maybe not necessarily in like a malicious sense, but definitely in a um, self-serving sense. Actually, sometimes in a malicious sense. Um, I don't really know exactly why they do some of the things they do, like cutting the power at a party. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, yeah, so we've got other changes like letters become emails because it's the early 2000s, so texting isn't a big thing, but emails are. Um, And then uh, we've got some plot changes like Mary ends up marrying Collins and not not, uh, Elizabeth's friend Charlotte. Uh, We've got, what else? I think those are some, oh, so talking about the ending... We have Wickham and Lydia run away to Vegas to get married. And at the end, Wickham gets arrested and and stuff. And He gets uh, arrested on outstanding... Uh, yeah, I don't even know exactly what he got arrested for. So the other four characters uh, who we have who play big parts, uh, number one is Mr. Collins who is still in the film, still in the story, and he's definitely trying to pursue uh, Elizabeth. However, he gets um, 
stolen away almost by Mary and they, those two end up going out. Uh, then we still have Darcy who is instead of a rich heir of an estate in England, he is the rich CEO of a company in California that he inherited from his, uh, from his father. A book uh, he, publishing company conveniently for our writer protagonist. Exactly. He is still friends with Bingley, who is uh, not very smart. And by not very smart, I mean they made him a total idiot. Um, yeah, he's not definitely sure a rich kid. He is devoted to his entrepreneurial pursuit of developing music tracks to make dogs smarter. Um, Which basically and, just means taking Mozart and playing it on extremely high dog whistle notes that you then um, let your dog listen to, except for sometimes it makes German shepherds incredibly violent, which actually is important, believe it or not. To the plot. Yes. Right. Yes, it is. Um, and then our final uh, character who they keep in is Caroline, who is uh, Bingley's sister and is extra manipulative in this version in her pursuit of Darcy and her attempts to keep... Uh, both Jane and uh, Elizabeth away from Bingley and Darcy, respectively. And then we also have Wickham, who just looks really sleazy and uh, is constantly having Elizabeth like pay for stuff for him and is not so subtly um, kind of the D-bag character. Right, right. And he's, he's an outright criminal he doesn't just gamble he is arrested for i believe petty theft um and outstanding debts of some sort at the end um except i don't think you can be arrested for outstanding debts anymore because debtor prison is illegal i don't know but <laughs> he gets arrested after taking lydia to uh get married in vegas and then the 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 officiant in vegas quote uh, lots of quotes on officiant in vegas uh it's like haven't you been here before and then darcy comes in and saves the day and there's a a brawl and um bingley plays his music for the cops german shepherd and goes crazy i don't know what happened at the end of this movie it kind of all blew up so the most interesting thing about modern adaptations or any adaptation that tries to move from one time period to another time period that's um, far enough away to have social values and social conventions um, shift between time period A and time period B is seeing the changes that they make uh, to, to adapt to the new social setting, but also how to make those changes but stay true to the the, the themes and the storyline and the message of the original uh, work, which which is the the lasting quality of the work, definitely in Pride and Prejudice, the, the, the period aspects of it are interesting, but what really keeps us interested, I think, century after century, and it has been a couple centuries by now, is that uh, is watching this this love story play out and you know misjudging people. Uh, and so on and so forth. And we could talk about that more if we had a book podcast, but we have a, <laughs> a, a movie podcast. So um, we're talking about how this 2003 film at least tried to adapt uh, 
these characters to a modern setting but i'm not sure that they did that very well what do you what do you think jonathan yeah there's definitely some kind of essentials that they missed or didn't or got lost in in the translation somehow um so one of the probably the first biggest weakness is taking away the family aspect because the fact that these are all sisters and that darcy disapproves of the family is a really big element in um in why uh elizabeth feels so hurt whenever he reproves her family and in this they're all just friends so there's not really a uh like that blood connection there and we don't even know why they're friends with some of these people like mary is so awkward and so different from the rest that it's never quite explained why she's part of the group um and then there's a point where darcy is giving criticism on her book because he's this part of this publishing company that's that's considering it for review and she didn't know that he was the one who would be reviewing it but as he's criticizing her book, she's kind of totally um, rejecting all of his criticism and feeling hurt by it. But it's not the same comparison as when Darcy criticizes her family in the book, because you have you you actually have kind of a lifelong connection to your family, whereas you're actually supposed to take constructive criticism on your creative work especially from a publishing company who can put your book out there he wasn't like trying to change the entire story he was just giving her actual constructive criticism and she shut him down just because she doesn't like him another character who kind of uh fell from grace so to speak in this 2003 version is uh mr collins who um while maybe not a fan favorite um unless you count the Matt Smith rendition in uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, but we're not Which quite there we'll get to yet. in a second, yeah. <laughs> um, Mr. Collins in the book is a super important character because married, marrying him, if one of the sisters were to marry him, it would mean future security for all five sisters. All five sisters would be able to retain their house after the death of their father at some point in the future. Um, but by rejecting him, uh, Lizzie more or less guarantees that when their father dies, they lose the house. Um, and then all the rest of the family that's remaining will be destitute. But in the 2003 movie, Mr. Collins is just kind of a annoying guy who's trying to marry Lizzie for random reasons random unclear reasons yeah um, he's he's this kind of super religious character who um what in what feels like extremely outdated style is is kind of stuck on this idea of we have to marry and and procreate and fill the earth and and all this kind of stuff which feels very shoehorned in in this movie because none of the other characters are like that right and in the original mr collins wasn't even um that overtly religious of a character i mean he was he was the parson of a parish but he um he doesn't much more concerned with lady catherine than the fact that he needs to marry for religious reasons it was mostly because he's so obsessed with his patron and she was like you know you should get married you know that right right there's even a point where he's um 
he's asked whether or not dancing might be offensive to his religious uh, values and um, proving that he's not a character in Footloose he says no I love dancing um, <laughs> right but yeah they just kind of of uh, made that character really sad so another interesting way to look at um, a modern adaptation rather than a period adaptation is uh, the techniques because uh, the techniques that you might use in a period piece would probably differ from a modern adaptation. You tend to see more techniques that would define it as that that year's modern adaptation. So if this adaptation is a 2003 adaptation, so there would probably be an urge to see 2003 techniques um, be prevalent in that modern adaptation to you know define it as modern rather than period. And you do see that in this movie. Um, again, maybe it doesn't work. Um, and by maybe I'm saying it doesn't work, but <laughs> there's, there's, there's quite a few, uh, kicking off from the start. There's just a, so many montages. Yeah. So many. You're gonna need a montage. <laughs> and they, oh, they are not they shy about that song. Their, yeah. They are not shy about their montages with the pop rock music and the, and driving from one place to another that is just overused in so many, um, uh, movies of all genres but this starting one is off, just even just starting off the movie with a get not just a montage but a getting ready for your day montage is yeah. so 1990s 2000s um mid-budget filmmaking it's ridiculous it's exactly what i expected to see at the start of this movie before <laughs> i watched it and it was yeah and then there are other things like there are constant flashbacks with really funky colorizations done to them and daydreams that supposed to shock you and then oh nope that was just in her head which i get that she's a writer but that's also a cliche of writer characters and you know creative characters that are always daydreaming and then psych that didn't actually happen but is not pulled off nearly so well as in you know movies like um uh the secret life of Walter Mitty that kind of hinge around that. These are just kind of thrown in there randomly uh, just for fun. Right. And the weird thing is that a lot of these techniques are meant to make it feel modern, but that also sometimes means that the film doesn't age that well. And I really, really think this one doesn't like you can look at it um, and you could definitely be like, I feel like that was made sometime between 2000 and 2005. Right. Um, it, it just feels like that kind of movie. It feels dated and and a bit old. And maybe maybe it didn't age so well because I I know both you and I saw some not uh, some some mixed to favorable reviews from uh, 2003 on it, but. Yeah, so we can't say how it, how it stacked up with other modern romance movies that were coming out at the same time, but looking back on it, it doesn't hold up terribly well. No, no, it really doesn't, um, which is why we're not going to talk about it anymore. Instead, <laughs> we're going to talk about zombies. Yeah, so this is um, a modern creation set in a period time with uh, a fantastical element and it's just kind of a lot of fun. Uh, I was kind of expecting to... I, I had a little bit of a of a Pride Prejudice moment with this film where I was expecting to, to go into it and be 
uh, very condescending about it, but it kind of won me over pretty quickly because it's it's uh, uh, part of I prejudice. Your prejudice against that movie. I know that's what I'm saying. It was definitely an Elizabeth and Darcy, and uh, I was very Darcy going into this movie, but <laughs> it it won me over. It's yeah, it's it's definitely not. Um... It's definitely not high art of any kind. It's not, you know, a super artsy film. It's just a really fun movie. And because it's a Pride and Prejudice adaptation with a flair, it kind of feels like this fandom. Um, it's hard to say that it's fan fiction because it's a movie now. But, you know, <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey is also a movie now. So I think yeah. that's out the window. But but it is. It is kind of fan fiction. It's like, you know, what if what if that really great love story with Elizabeth Bennett and William Darcy had zombies. Right. And it's not a matter <laughs> so, of diminishing the love story. It's just a matter of, you know, throwing, throwing in, in a side, side zombie storyline. I mean, that's yeah. literally what it, it follows all the same plot beats until maybe the very end. There's, um, so yeah, we'll just kind of talk about the changes, um, real quick. We start off, this isn't a movie where we see a zombie outbreak. We start in the middle of a war with zombies, and during the- It has been going on for like a hundred years. Yeah, and there's a super great title sequence where we see this pop-up book explaining, um, giving us our exposition of how the zombies came to be and how they protected London, how they fortified London with a big wall and a moat and- all this stuff. So it gives us all the information really quickly at the beginning, and then we can jump straight into uh, the Bennett sisters, you know, going through their da- daily routine. But their daily routine just happens to include uh, muskets and dagger cleaning, which is just fun. Knowing the knowing the original material makes every part of this movie a lot more fun to watch. Right, right. It's definitely one of those movies where uh, it would be almost weird to watch it without knowing. The Pride and Prejudice story, but it's really fun with it, and they they follow that they follow that story almost for the most part up until the very end. Like you said, it's just that while they're doing all the things associated with the story, they still have they have to be like wary of zombies at the same time. So so they're going to uh, there's one point where Mister Collins and the girls are going to visit their friends in town. And they're talking, and Mr. Collins is being a bit annoying. Um, but they have to stop and kill some zombies first. Or, or Jane is sent over to uh, Mr. Bingley's house by by her mom, and instead of getting sick on the way to uh, to the house, she's attacked by zombies on the way to the house, and she's held in quarantine at Mr. Bingley's house to make uh-huh. sure that she won't turn into a zombie. Um, which is really entertaining because after you watch so many Pride and Prejudice adaptations in a row, it's nice to see something that's, you know, really fresh. Like, not just fresh, but it's pretty funky. But Right, without, uh, without condescending the source material at all. I mean, they use literal dialogue. I mean, there are some great moments where they have literal dialogue from the books um, and then they throw in zombie talk. So there's a point in the book where... Mr. Darcy is talking about all the things that a woman needs to be considered accomplished in his books. She needs to be uh, well-read. She needs to know all the languages. She needs to um, know how to knit or play piano or whatever. And then in the zombie version, he throws in, and she also needs to be versed in all of the fighting styles of killing zombies. And it's just like, (laughs) but it's, 
the language stays the same. The language isn't isn't modernized. It's uh it's just laced with uh with zombie killing intrigue. Right, right. And I like that it's not um over the top zombies like day of the dead level zombies um where where the zombies kind of consume the narrative um like there's definitely but <laughs> ah, zombie <laughs> puns it's it's where the the zombies just add flavor and another storyline to the narrative they don't they don't they don't become the only storyline they they are an additional storyline that eventually at the end becomes a very large one and has to be resolved um but but not without dominating the love story. The love story between Elizabeth Bennett, who's this super well-trained, um, badass, living in the country outside of London with her family, and uh, this colonel in charge of lots of zombie killing, uh, William Darcy, you know, that, that still takes centerpiece and kind of drives the plot. There's just also zombies driving the plot. Yeah, and there's another kind of fun thing that they do where, um, so in filmmaking, there's there's a phrase that's like, every scene is a conflict, or every scene needs to have a conflict. And in this film, all of the important conversations, like Darcy's proposal and Elizabeth's rejection and um, Lady Catherine de Bourgh's interrogation of Elizabeth when she finds out that they're going to be engaged, are all turned into literal fights. So... Once Elizabeth rejects rejects Darcy and starts explaining her reasons, she's throwing books at him, and then there's like punching each other and rolling around the room and grappling and all this kinds of stuff. And it's ridiculous, but it's fun because we know that there's the tension there, and now they're extremely well trained fighters, so they can express that in a much more physical way. Right, you're taking the verbal sparring that was so interesting in the original material and you know replacing it with just literal sparring which um you know that that kind of like replacement is what's so fun with this really out of the box kind of style adaptation where you like that you already like the source material you're like wouldn't that be great but what if what if uh when when darcy proposes elizabeth gets really mad and tries to kill him uh wouldn't, wouldn't that be an interesting scene to watch and and just watching how Watching the change from the original material to the new material, the new adaptation, is just what makes this movie so fun um, because that change is just so ridiculous. Right, because instead of watching a new movie and being like, oh man, I don't know what's going to happen, you're you're thinking, okay, so I think I know what's going to happen, but how are they going to make it more interesting and maybe a zombie will show up randomly and they have to kill it while they're in the middle of their, their card game or whatever. Exactly. And we keep talking about these zombies, but we, we haven't really explained what the zombie plot is to the yeah, film, besides was, the yeah. fact that they've mostly taken over England, except for this bubble uh, around London and London itself. Um, so so do you want you want to take that? Yeah, I'll get into a little a little bit, but um, I, we don't need to get too deep into it. People who can watch it can still uh, still not get too spoiled by it. So basically there's, we find out that their zombies, once bitten, are not completely, you know, brain thirsty zombies until they have eaten their first human brain. Until then, 
they're still pretty civil and you can't really tell that they're zombies they still look kind of normal um but as soon as they eat a human brain they their flesh starts melting off and they turn into like the zombies that we know um so but but some of the zombies have found a way to kind of maintain their more human qualities by eating pig's brains instead of human brains so it kind of it kind of dissipates their hunger and and doesn't turn them into uh killing monsters um so i but there's some other things thrown in there with like the four horsemen of the apocalypse that come and signal the end times and stuff and this is actually one of the problems that i have with the movie which i'm not gonna they never ni- explain the four horsemen do they right that's what i was about to say is that the film is almost like the the zombie plot isn't totally resolved so i'm it's either setting up for a sequel or it's just really poorly wrapped up right they never they they resolve our individual characters plot at the end but they never they never give us a hint to the the greater uh the greater stakes of whether or not england will ever survive um which is only really a question i mean it's definitely it would definitely be believable if they ended the movie with these two characters falling in love and still just managing to survive in a world that's been completely taken over by zombies but they hint at a greater plot with these four horsemen and, and they hint at an antichrist and a giant battle and all these things that we don't actually see so i'm actually wondering if they will do a sequel um but uh but if not, then it really does kind of fall. The Pride and Prejudice storyline wraps up fine, but the, the uh, zombie plot maybe leaves a, a something to something to yeah. be desired. Let's talk about overall our overall notes. So I mean, we both love this story, so we can see why it's been you know retold so many times and in so many different ways. And I mean, this goes for a lot of great literature like Sherlock and Dracula and Frankenstein and all these things that you've seen so many adaptations of just because they're in the public domain and they've stood the test of time. And so people are always going to love these stories. And there there are certain things that we've noticed that kind of stay the same in these adaptations that are never, they're not something that you have to keep to according to the book or anything. But And they're really small things, but it's really interesting to see how they carry over. For example, hair colors. Almost every adaptation we saw this week, Jane had blonde hair, right? Or some kind of light-colored hair. Jane, yeah, Jane, that was that actually shocked me a lot because I didn't picture Jane as being blonde in the book. I don't know, maybe they m- mentioned that and I missed it, but everyone cast Jane as blonde. And in the same way, every single version we saw, Darcy has really dark hair, brown or black hair, and uh, Bingley has some kind of light hair, usually red or um, maybe blonde. Right, right. These little, these little extraneous points that almost become uh, canon because they've just been referenced so much by each adaptation. Um, I mean, you can you can just tell, like looking at Colin Firth's Mr. Darcy, how much that's impacted uh, the casting of every Mr. Darcy since then. Absolutely. And, you know, another another point is Mary has glasses in every single version. There is not a version where Mary does not have glasses. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they, And I don't think that was specified her. in the book, but you think of her character as the nerdy, 
um, you know, only reads and plays piano and is moralizing all the time. And so, oh, what what do those kind of people have? They have glasses. Yeah, and they they also um, because Mary is described as being the only Bennett sister to have the misfortune of being plain uh, in the book. Uh, they always have to give her uh, very either downplayed or just straight up negative makeup where they put a couple extra moles on her face and, yeah, and just or pimples or whatever. Right, right. They just like try to make her look bad, which, you know, always makes me feel bad <laughs> for Mary. Yeah, she is kind of sympathetic um, in a lot of the versions, but. Yeah, everyone always rags on her, man. Yeah, and we also noticed that. A- for the most part, they these abbreviated film versions keep most of the same plot points. So you get the party at the beginning where Elizabeth overhears uh, disparaging comments against her. You get the um, the visit to Bingley's house, although that's not quite as played up in the two thousand three version. I don't think you get no, it's not. You get the proposal and rejection. The running into Darcy randomly, Wickham, Wickham elopes with Lydia, um, just the really big ones. But they all seem to pick up on the same, the same major pieces, without right. too much variation. Like there isn't, there isn't a lot of taking liberties with what the characters do. It's just a matter of how it's presented. Right, right, and that's you know it's it goes beyond just referencing the same material uh from the book just but also referencing each adaptation over and over uh which which becomes weirdly enough this way to to redefine what's truly important in the book uh because you know if a certain plot point is always kept and a certain plot point is always cut by each adaptation that influences what the next adaptation might cut and keep and in turn, what might be interpreted as important and not important by fans of Pride and Prejudice um, and fans of the book and other adaptations. Uh, so and there's I, actually something interesting that I noticed that I wanted—I was wondering if you picked up on—is the fact that especially the uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombie version, which is the newest version, so it has all of these other versions that we're talking about to draw from, um, but it actually pulled dialogue from the 2005 version that that isn't in the book but it was almost the same the same thing so so darcy accuses jane of not showing her feelings or not not um expressing her feelings and and elizabeth says that's because she's shy and that was not that was not in the book but they both said that in 2005 in prejudice and zombies i totally noticed that um it was I think that was one of those moments where I realized that uh, these works are not just adapting from uh, from the from the the book in 1813 it's also adapting from all of the other versions you know the 1940 right. film with uh, Laurence Olivier and the 1995 miniseries with Colin Firth and 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 so on and so forth and and also to some extent the uh, 2012. Uh, 2013 uh, YouTube series, The Lizzie Bennet Diaries, which is a fantastic modern adaptation, by the way. I have to recommend that. Um, over, if, if you're looking for a modern adaptation out there, 
the Lizzie Bennet Diaries is a much better adaptation than the 2003 movie. Yeah, so talking about um, other adaptations that we we didn't cover in the film portion of the podcast, we have the uh, 1995 BBC miniseries with Colin Firth. This is probably the truest to the book version out of any that we've seen, and we've seen all the ones that, I mean, you can actually find somewhere. There are a couple other miniseries that have kind of been been kind of forgotten i guess right Um, and there's there's a chinese tv show adaptation which obviously we couldn't get our hands on but but there's also um the 1940 uh pride and prejudice adaptation with um which was adapted by aldous huxley uh curiously enough um which stars Laurence olivier and so it's very interesting golden era um look at the story there's some changes in there, such as um, Lady Catherine is kind of uh, stripped of her antagonism in in some ways, and there's they take some more liberties with the story while keeping to those main plot points that we talked about. And then uh, the second newest version, besides the zombie adaptation, is like we said, the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, which you can find on YouTube, um, presented by Pemberley Digital which is a fun site that we just learned about, which has been kind of adapting some classic work into uh, modern web series. So, for example, the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, it's it's basically told from the point of view of of Elizabeth Bennet creating a, a vlog series, and she just kind of talks about her life. So we see the whole story kind of um, evolving around her through her her little... Uh, external monologues, her soliloquies to the camera. Right. I, I think that version does a really good job of uh, capturing the kind of like subjective, flawed narrator aspect of the Pride and Prejudice story. So the other thing, the last thing I want to talk about is just kind of the the way we can see the changing uh, demographic, which I've, I hinted at a little bit earlier, between 2003 and 2016. 2003 and the, the late 90s, early 2000s were kind of uh, a golden era for rom-coms and fun little quirky romance stories, I feel like. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but there are, there are a lot of classic rom-coms that came out in that era. Uh, I think it was, yeah, it was definitely a strong period for that. And the, I mean, there still are, but there, there always are. And whereas... In current times, after you know the popularity of Twilight and uh, a lot of these other, you know, zombie movies that that aren't strictly horror, but now zombies can be incorporated into other genres, we we mm-hmm. kind of see the shift of people's interest from you know the the cliche drenched cheesy just straight romance girl meets guy all this kind of stuff to now the girl has to be a badass just as much as the guy does. Um, yeah and girl meets guy meets zombie yeah meets zombie (laughs) girl meets guy meets zombie zombie loses head (laughs) oh my so many zombies so it'll be interesting to see what um audiences in search of a romance story are going to be looking for in the future and what other kinds of um elements might be incorporated into pride and prejudice and other classic literature to quote unquote keep it up to date even though 
Of right. course, the 2005 version, which is set in the period, is still just as charming as any of the versions. More so, in fact. Right, right. And you're right. We'll, we will be seeing plenty more adaptations um, of Pride and Prejudice and all of these classic stories where, of course, nobody has to pay, pay a um, copyright fee on it. So we will definitely be seeing more adaptations of it. And it will be very interesting to, to chart um, the public taste and public interest in rom-coms uh, through those adaptations almost as we move forward in time. Uh, speaking of changing adaptations, let's start talking about next week because next week is all about uh, adaptations and how audience expectation changes. Right, right. And we're tackling um, a more... Uh, amorphous story <laughs> yeah let's let's go with that uh we're, we're tackling with a a less well-defined story but it's it's one that i think uh most people in america if not the entire world know fairly well and that is the story of batman but it's not just our, our first batman week it's our first uh guest week which we're really excited about yeah next week we are going to have on um a good friend of mine named Aaron Johnson, uh, who I met in college, and he is a giant comic book fan, and he said that he would like to talk about the different uh, reboots of Batman that we've gotten for many years, starting with 1966 Batman the Movie, starring Adam West. Classic. Um, that one's going to be a lot of fun. And then, of course, uh, the 1989 uh, Batman Tim Burton reboot, uh, which is in many ways a classic in its own right. That's inspired a lot of modern day superhero filmmaking. Yep. And just when we thought that 89 was dark and gritty, along comes Christopher Nolan with Batman Begins and our third film, a kickoff to the modern era of dark and gritty superhero movies culminating in the last film yes we're doing four movies this week uh bear with us it's a special week right and i think it's easy enough for all of us to follow along because i think we all know at least a little something about batman and regardless of the highly contested mixed reviews out there uh, among the comic book fan world, we will be reviewing, watching, and reviewing uh, Batman vs. Superman: Dawn of Justice by uh, Zack Snyder. And uh, it was released just last year in 2016, and it was the darker and the grittier reboot. <laughs> yeah, so this is we're trying to capture the first film of each rebooted franchise, or at least the major ones. Um, since 1966 so Batman vs Superman kicks off the Batfleck and uh, all the movies that are going to be coming out in the future with Justice League and all that stuff well that's about all the time we have for this episode if you have movie suggestions or want to reach out I can be found on Twitter at at JS Satchel and I'm at Alex Geringer and to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at jssatchel.wordpress.com slash blog. Talk to you next week. Happy right. Valentine's Day. <laughs> All right. See ya. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day.